our lives are not our own. From womb to tomb, we are bound to others, past and present. Right, how do you even approach a discussion about a film as complex as Cloud Atlas? I've just followed your lead, not quite <laughs> in as um, as much detail, shall we say. I know you've been mm. working on this for weeks now. Yeah. Because it is big. It's quite mammoth. Yeah. We're going to go into a lot of detail, obviously, but it's probably worth contextualising what it is we're actually talking about here. Cloud Atlas, what is it? It incorporates six stories, radically different genres, six different time periods spanning five centuries, past, present, future, all on different continents that seemingly incorporate every theme under the sun concerning the human condition all at the same time. Does that seem right to you? Um, yeah, I think that basically <laughs> is as simple as you can put it. <laughs> yeah, it is like a kaleidoscope, isn't it? Or like a labyrinth with no dead ends because everything just either comes full circle or every path meets somehow. Yeah. But it's also very cleverly constructed, which I guess is why we're here today to dissect it. It is incredibly uh, well put together. Um, Mm -hmm. I think you can very easily underestimate it. Yeah, the tagline itself even very proudly claims that everything is connected. They they must be very sure about what they'd made with this film. Um, I should probably give just a little bit of background. It is based on the best-selling and award-winning novel by David Mitchell. If you're in the UK, no, it's not that David Mitchell. It's a different one. Um, (laughs) uh, It won the Literary Fiction Award at the British Book Awards. It was Richard and Judy's Book of the Year. Uh, It was nominated for the Man Booker Prize, a Nebula Award, an Arthur C. Clarke Award, and loads more. However, it was deemed unfilmable. And even the author himself said, yeah, this would never be a film. Mm -hmm. So I guess what's the point of this episode then? Um, Usually this year anyway, we've been doing episodes based on anniversaries or birthdays, like when we did Titanic Mm -hmm. uh, in the last episode. So this seems a little bit random, but actually after watching the film, it strangely fits the current times that we're in. I think. Yeah, there's kind of two reasons we did this, isn't there? One of the reasons was obviously Titanic was my dissertation piece mm. um, at university, so it made sense to pick your dissertation piece and do them together. <laughs> yeah. um, but then yeah. obviously, yeah, like you say, when you actually look into it, there's more links to mm-hmm. now than you would perhaps think. So I guess, yeah, our job today is to investigate how not just one, but three directors. So the Wachowski siblings, who were most famous for doing The Matrix, and Tom Tickfer, who probably most well known for Run Lola Run, um, Mm. when faced with the impossible, were able to translate this novel, which is already so full of dense ideas and already pushed narrative boundaries into a film that pushed cinematic boundaries as well through all sorts of things and I guess this is kind of our agenda what they did with narrative structure everything to do with like visual and audio language and with the cast as well which is a whole other <laughs> dimension on top of it all and then at the end we're just going to address some of the reasons why we think the film was dismissed or misunderstood or just not seen. Mm-hmm. Hopefully one of the aims for you the listeners will mm. be to reevaluate this film might make you go back and look at it again yeah because it is dismissed mm-hmm. um so should we get started yeah i was going to say there isn't going to be a quiz no there is not not this week excavating the film is kind of already the ultimate test and i've tasked you with um some homework 
Um, mm-hmm. Just a little. I gave you some articles and mm-hmm. videos and behind the scenes stuff, interviews, a bit of a press conference that they did. Um, I thought it was important that even if we have different opinions, that we were at least on the same page about what the intention of the film was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, we're doing this all verbally. Obviously, we don't have any visual references, so this is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, and yep. the only logical way to approach the film is to tackle it in layers. Yes. Um, one of the characters says in the film that in life we cross and recross our old tracks like figure skaters. That's not what we want to do in this podcast. So if you're wondering why haven't <laughs> they talked about such a thing yet, just bear with us, we'll get there. Um, and I'll put timestamps in the YouTube description as well if you want to skip ahead. But I recommend listening to the whole thing if you want to get the whole picture. Yes. And maybe watching the film first unless you want to be backwards about it. So the first thing we should probably do just for everyone's sanity, we should start by breaking down these individual six stories and their themes in the simplest way possible. Yeah. Um, everything that's kind of concrete and right there in front of you on the screen and treat them as separate, just like the book does. So this is where I've sort of tasked you now with how well you can succinctly yeah. summarise these stories. Summarise is definitely the word. Um, yes. So I'll start with number one. Protagonist, Adam Ewing, played by Jim Sturgis. Antagonist, Dr. Henry Goose, played by Tom Hanks. Um, the location is the Pacific Islands and pretty much at sea for the majority. Uh, and your time is 1849. Uh, I would say the genre for this is like a historical drama, this one, I would say. That's what yeah. I thought, yeah. Um, so your plot, you've got Adam Ewing. He's taking a contract concerning slaves back home on a ship to his father-in-law. Um, he's being poisoned for his wealth by the doctor who is met on the islands um, and a slave is stowed away onto the ship and he is helped by Adam to stay on the ship and be able to work as a, a sailor basically and earn his way and the slave then saves Adam's life by fighting the doctor um, when he discovers him trying to kill him so Adam arrives home uh, with the slave in tow and tells his mm. father-in-law that he'll have no part in the slave trade business and is moving to help the abolitionists. Number two, <laughs> your protagonist is Robert Frobisher, played by Ben Wishaw. Antagonist, Vivian Ayres, played by Jim Broadbent. The location is Edinburgh. The time is 1936. And the genre, I'd say, period drama. It's period drama, a bit melodramatic, romancy. Yeah. yeah. The plot for this one, you've got Robert Frobisher. Um, he leaves his gay lover to travel to the house of a famed composer, Vivian Ayres, uh, with a plan to write with him and in the process create and publish his own composition. Mm-hmm. And all the while he's writing of his exploits um, in a series of letters to his one true love, Six Smith, who he left behind at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, he creates the Cloud Atlas Sextet, but is threatened to stay by Ayres and finish the piece, which will be released under Ayer's name only, or mm. he will make sure everyone knows that he is a homosexual. Uh, Frobisher kills himself um, with Sixsmith, unable to arrive in time to stop him, but he does keep all of his letters. Mm-hmm. Then you've got number three. Your protagonist is Louisa Ray, played by Halle Berry. The antagonist, Bill Smoke, played by Hugo Weaving, and Lloyd Hooks, played by Hugh Grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the location is San Francisco, is it? Is it San Francisco, this one? Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, in the 1970s, I'd say this is a political thriller. Yeah, the typical 70s conspiracy yeah. type thing. 
so Louisa Ray is a journalist um, who becomes embroiled in the crooked plot of an oil company pretending to advance nuclear energy, but really intending the plan to fail, cause a huge amount of deaths, a huge accident, um, and in the process, continue oil. Mm-hmm. Louisa's helped by Sixsmith, and he in turn is killed for his knowledge. Louisa's hunted by a hired killer, Bill Smoke, but she's then helped by the head of security um, of the company, and eventually she succeeds in getting the plans out to the public. Mm-hmm. Then you've got number four, which um, has your protagonist as Timothy Cavendish, played by Jim Broadbent. Your antagonist is Nurse Noakes, um, played by Hugo Weaving. I love that character so much. Uh, and Denham Cavendish, who's played by Hugh Grant. Uh, the location this time is London and Scotland. Your time is 2012, which would have been present day. It was present day at the time. Yeah. yeah. And your genre is, I'd say it's like a comedy drama, but leaning more heavily on the comedy. It's quite farcical, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it definitely is. comedy. Your plot here, you've got Timothy Cavendish is a publisher, um, a coward, never had the guts to take the steps to have a happy life with the girl he loved as a young man. Mm. Uh, he gets into money trouble, uh, not a new occurrence, um, <laughs> and he turns to his brother for help, who has him locked in a home for the elderly, which he cannot leave. Um, but he butts heads with the head nurse and plans an escape with three other residents and in the process becomes a better man able mm-hmm. to take the steps required to gain the life that he wants <laughs> yep number five you've got your protagonist sonmi 451 played mm-hmm. by duna bay duna bay yes yeah. uh, and your antagonist sia re is hugh grant and basically the establishment government in general the head of which <laughs> is played by hugo weaving yeah your time is 2144 so we're well into the future here and definitely a sci-fi genre mm, unmistakable yeah. I'd say this is where it gets more complicated okay. um, story-wise. Um, so Sonmi451 is bred to be a server. Mm-hmm. Um, she's telling her story whilst under arrest. Uh, she's a waitress in a restaurant. She serves, is fed a juice box, sleeps and repeats, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they're clones and are told they will be taken away to join the consumers, basically, once they reach, is it 12 years? Is yeah, it? you have to like, do your time and then you're free. Yeah. yeah. So she wakes one night to find the seer dead and a strange man there. He helps her escape and she sees the above world. Um, she's educated and told that his faction of, of people believe she is the one who'll change the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to show her why, she has shown what really happens to the, the clones called fabricants mm-hmm. um, who are supposedly joining the consumers and really, in reality, they're being killed and scrapped, basically, to create new clones and their food. So they're basically eating each other. Yeah. Um, and she helps them fight, sends her message to the masses, um, and she is killed. Yeah, she's martyred, basically, isn't she? Mm-hmm. Okay, last one. <laughs> yeah. Number six, your protagonist is Zachary, played mm-hmm. by Tom Hanks, and your antagonist, I would say you've got two here as well. You've got um, old Georgie, who's like a devil-type character. He's the only non-human character, really. Yeah, he's like yeah. a devil on your shoulder type, um, yeah. played by Hugo Weaving. And you've got the Kona chief, played by Hugh Grant. 
your locations, Big Isle. Yeah, I believe it's meant to be Hawaii in the future. Yeah, it looks like it. And your time is 1.06. So basically, I think it's like an apocalyptic future, isn't it? Yeah, they reference something called the fall. So it looks like at some point there's been some kind of disaster in the novel. I think it's like 2321, the year. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Zachary is a goat herder in a post apocalyptic primitive tribe who watches his brother in law and nephew killed by a cannibal group, the Kona. There's this metaphorical devil, this mm-hmm. old Georgie on his shoulder, hissing foul things in his ear, and he does nothing. A more advanced woman comes to travel to the top of this mountain um, that none will travel to um, with the hope to save the human race and send out a message for help. Uh, and Zachary decides to help her all the way really is plagued with doubts about her mm-hmm. um, and in the end he takes the leap to have faith and help her and eventually they leave earth and you learn this when it's revealed at the end he's telling the story to his grandchildren mm-hmm. on an off-world colony somewhere <laughs> obviously it sounds extremely complicated Yes, it does. (laughs) And at surface value, it is. The reason we're going to break it down is to sort of explain how actually it's maybe not as complicated as it seems, Mm -hmm. despite appearing to be completely different. David Mitchell, the author, said it's like a menu of very different courses from different cuisines. Yes. All six stories fundamentally follow roughly the same narrative template. They're just variations on an identical core story and they just reflect on each other as you go through the film. So there's a lot going on in terms of themes. Yeah. You touched on what Sonmi says towards the end, her revelation. Yes. It's sort of something that also underpins the entire film. And Absolutely. That quote yeah. is that our lives are not our own. From womb to tomb, we're bound to others, past and present. And by each crime and every kindness, we birth our future. And that encapsulates all the themes that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. But for the sake of starting um, small and building up, um, <laughs> and there's a lot to unpack and a lot of abstract concepts as well, we should start with the basics, sort of this idea of crimes and kindness, because there's sort of a morality tale, isn't there, like, that's always going on? Yes, absolutely. How do you think this was manifested or personified in the film? Well, I've, I've listed a number of crimes and kindnesses mm-hmm. big or small um so you've got um a critic thrown off a building mm-hmm. uh, thugs breaking in and threatening timothy for money you've got killing and eating innocents um six smith killed for his knowledge yeah. uh, and the same with um Sachs, his planes blown up um Somni 451's killed and made a martyr. Frobisher's blackmailed, his reputation threatened. There's, you know, there's a number of all of these these yeah. crimes repeating in every story. And then obviously the same for the kindnesses. It's that it can be as simple as stopping the lift. Yeah, very small things. Yeah, something like that. Helping Sonmi 451 escape. Um Saving Merrin for falling, helping feed the slaves, um, saving Zachary's niece from dying, Sachs covering for Louisa and then giving her the information she needs, um, mm-hmm. the security guard warning and helping her, and residents helping Timothy escape. Um, it's dotted all the way through. You take the protagonist of each story, the main character, and you oppose them with the villain of each one, and they mm-hmm. kind of form this sort of dominant, inferior, strong and weak slave or oppressed people versus civilized folk they say the weak are meat and the strong must eat 
Yeah, uh, exactly. Which pretty much shadows every story, really. It does, until there's literal cannibalism yes. at the very end, like the, the Kona tribe. Putting it quite literally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and the idea of fabricants just getting recycled and they feed them back to themselves. Mm-hmm. There's loads of stuff to do with the idea and the actual physical act of cannibalism. Mm-hmm. I'd say to simplify it completely down to its most bare basic bones, mm-hmm. um, I'd say it's cause and effect, basically. Yeah. Well, when you said about little acts of kind, mm-hmm. it's not just so much, oh, they're just being nice to each other, but these determine the events that happen afterwards. Exactly. Good deeds ripple through time, mm-hmm. the same as, as crimes do. The good deeds of others change the lives of those they meet they have impact basically they all sort of help feed an objective Mm -hmm. to either become free or to free others or to uncover truth um against against the notion of lies Mm -hmm. um to be integral just to be good or to be courageous yeah um because in each story, they're kind of oppressed characters and they're all seeking to elicit great social change. Yeah. Um, almost to create a better future for the next generation yeah. to inherit. And then there's a strong message about you've got to kind of do it yourself in a way as well. Yes. We all have a responsibility to fight injustice and stuff. Like I said, I feel like story five with Sonmi451, that's where it gets mm. complicated. I think the others are more dressed down versions of those messages. Yeah. Whereas that story the all philosophical messages actually start becoming clear yeah i guess from a chronological perspective that story has a lot of the hindsight of stuff that's happened in the past absolutely i notice another few themes in there as well well i mean there's lots of themes in there's lots of films <laughs> but the theme of incarceration mm-hmm. being imprisoned and a huge theme for me was breaking boundaries yeah, absolutely. And that theme just keeps coming up over and over and over again. The villains keep asserting that there's a natural order to the world and that you can't possibly go against it because that's what binds everything together and you can't upend it because yeah. y- you won't fare well no matter what you do. Yeah, the end of the first story, they actually say there is a natural order to the world. Those who oppose it will not fare well. Yeah. I do like that there's a lot of philosophical themes to it. Um, Mm -hmm. Dialogue drives or explains the narrative. Even the philosophical themes, there are a lot of, whether it's narration or just dialogue spoken by characters. Absolutely. We should introduce a link on the level of narrative while we're still on it. You mentioned the letters in one of them. Yes. Um, Every story passes to the generation afterwards a kind of mode of storytelling. Um, some kind of documentation of their struggles that inspire the next generation that it gets passed to. So the journal of Adam Ewing as he crosses the Pacific. is being read by Frobisher. Frobisher, yeah, who writes the letters to Sixsmith, which are found by Louisa, Mm -hmm. whose neighbour writes a novel about her struggle with the nuclear company, which is read as a manuscript Mm -hmm. by Timothy Cavendish. His memoirs he writes, that gets adapted into a film. Yeah, you also got Louisa looking for Frobisher's Cloud Atlas Sextet and listening to that. Yeah, a subliminal seventh material Mm. that's passed throughout all the stories yeah ultimately by conveying life experiences they inadvertently inspire future generations to overcome their own obstacles and change their own lives in some kind of meaningful way it's exactly like you said when you said ripples through time Mm -hmm. to spark a revolution 
So there's a massive domino effect that shifts from individual rebellions to a full-blown overturning of this natural order in the long run. So essentially, because Adam Ewing in 1849 hides the stowaway, a fabricant with absolutely zero rights in the future can become a goddess. Um, yeah. And you're right, cause and effect, actions and consequences. I think that's very much what the film's about. Yeah. But there's something about when you said the fifth story is the one where it kind of all blows up. Mm-hmm. It's sad in a way that it takes five generations to get to that point because there's yeah. there's a bit of a, a demoralising aspect to the stories in that they end as a triumph, but by the start of the next story, it's almost like evil has reset and oppression, you know, a new form has arisen, mm-hmm. um, and you feel like everything's been a bit inconsequential and the lessons never learnt. Yeah, it's like they keep saying we keep making the same mistakes over and over. Yeah. Yeah, and there's something ironic about the furthest reaching story is actually the most primitive in the end because all these technical advancements that you see throughout each one, all the things that made us successful um, mm-hmm. in Darwinian terms, I suppose, sort of then threatened to wipe us all out. Yeah, well, again, they even say, don't they, in one of them, have you ever thought the universe was against you? Yeah, so absolutely. So like mistakes are repeating, the same obstacles are being put in front of the characters, almost like a puzzle to solve. Some manage it and some don't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess what then emerges, um, even the directors said that it's only at the end of reading the novel in which the stories appear one after the other, um, mm-hmm. when it clicks that these might not only be the same story, but that the characters are sort of versions of themselves, or they might be the same kind of soul, or they might mm-hmm. be reincarnated. So there's another sort of meta-narrative or a sub-layer of themes that emerges when you consider them on top of each other and not side by side. And I guess all the themes we've already talked about also fit into this sort of it's very Eastern philosophy um it's a very mm-hmm. buddhist film in a way yeah um, things like good deeds outweighing bad deeds that we're going to experience some kind of enlightenment or awakening to truth um but also that the actions and deeds of a person individually determine their position in some kind of afterlife mm-hmm. or that they're going to get reborn and we see this through examples of history repeating itself all the way through whether yeah. it's the people themselves or events or instances of fate and predestination but even saying that the filmmakers said you know that openness was the aim so the audience can bring their beliefs Mm. to it it was it's never one thing Mm -hmm. it's not bound by any one idea yeah um you you can bring an awful lot to it Mm -hmm. and it's only ever really implied as much as they can suggest that the characters are the same but that's an abstract concept yeah it's never going to be concrete to the audience Mm -hmm. um so i guess the screenplay and all the ways that the characters gradually become aware of this in their own lives and they either Mm -hmm. vocalize it or they think it um this is where these quotes come in i think it'd be great to sort of throw us some of them out there because there's so many so the idea that there's a bigger design how many examples did you hear um i have probably about 20 <laughs> there's a lot, at least there? there's, there's a few a we've already mentioned uh yes um i've got belief like fear or love phenomenon that determine the course of our lives yeah um so when characters find belief they break boundaries they change their life's course mm-hmm. these forces that often remake time and space that can shape and alter who we imagine ourselves to be yeah. begin long before we are born and continue after we perish so basically your life is predestined mm-hmm. um, though you can break the course and you can fight against it yeah um, exactly. creating something new that will change the future yeah 
again, one of the things that Sachs says, our lives and our choices, like quantum trajectories, are understood moment to moment yeah. at each point of intersection. Each encounter suggests a new potential direction. So basically, you are ultimately in control of your own life. Mm-hmm. But you can also be a product of other people's. Yes. Yes, you can. Yeah. It's having the strength as a person to um, break the norm, Yeah, basically. Yeah. But then there's a number of things about reincarnation, recurring mm-hmm. lives. Um, I just met her and yet I feel like something important has happened to me. Um, a suggestion that souls are connected through time. Some mm-hmm. part of them realizes the magnitude of a meeting Yeah. Um, because maybe it's happened before. Um, the dead never stay dead or I believe we do not stay dead long, suggesting reincarnation and mm-hmm. recurring lives separation is an illusion my life extends far beyond the limitations of me mm-hmm. uh, another suggestion of reincarnation and that we carry parts of all of our experiences perhaps in the soul yeah if that's the part that's moving on um i believe there's another world waiting for us a better world mm-hmm. Uh, and death is only a door when it closes another one's opening. And, and that yeah, is yeah. a good theme for the film because obviously we're seeing six stories where another life begins. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And not everyone lives at the end of theirs. <laughs> we know Frobisher and Sonmi die. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Another thing about breaking boundaries, um, all boundaries are conventions waiting to be transcended. Mm-hmm. One may transcend any convention if only one can first conceive of doing so. Yeah. So see beyond what appears possible, mm-hmm. the yeah. ordinary, um, the natural order to the world. This this whole film, all the stories show that it's it's not the case. Yeah, challenge the status quo. Just one opposition can create change. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got stuff like meeting again in different lives, in different ages. Yeah, and, th- and that was his description of how he wrote the sextet in the yes. second story, isn't it? yeah. And then the last one, the big one, kind of the mic drop, um, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to put it that way, uh-huh. is no matter what you do, it will never amount to anything more than a single drop in a limitless ocean mm-hmm. with the reply of <laughs> what is an ocean but a multitude of drops. My favourite quote. <laughs> yeah, which in quite simple terms, yeah, anything is possible. Yeah. Well, what's hilarious there is that I thought I'd written them all, and only three of <laughs> the ones that you said I've actually got written down. Wow. Uh, I've got a few extras. They do reference karma directly, silver linings and deja vu. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been here before another lifetime ago. Um, old Zachary at the beginning says, in the wind you can hear ancestry howling at you. Yeah. Uh, more mentions of immortal lives pushed throughout time. Mm-hmm. Uh, words and deeds apportioning themselves throughout all time consequences of an individual's life throughout eternity uh, mm-hmm. briefly people talk about a uh, past life thing or future life thing saying that they're meant to be together um, yeah is it not miraculous how one's fortune can turn so quickly so completely even louisa ray's novel is entitled half lives a louisa ray mystery and yeah. her frobisher signs off his letters yours eternally Mm -hmm. so yeah in terms of screenplay it's got to be said it is incredibly well written and the book if you ever get around to reading the book honestly it's like nothing you've ever seen before there's so many grand ideas i have actually felt more inclined to read it yeah yeah actually than i would ever have have done before it is quite something how it's been done yeah 
So these sort of broader themes, these more sort of philosophical ones that emerge as a result of putting the stories on top of each other is basically the version of the novel that the filmmakers wanted to make. So all the things that become evident after you finish the novel, they wanted to make apparent as you watch the film. And it's very different, is it not? Its format, its actual structure is very different from the book, if I'm correct. It's not a straightforward adaptation at all. Um, Yeah, so what happens is, Uh, This is where we go into narrative structure. Um, Mm -hmm. The novel, the stories are kind of nested like a Russian doll. Mm -hmm. So they appear in chronological order, but cut off at the climax. Yeah. Once you get to the sixth story, that runs all the way through to the end. Then you get the conclusions of five, four, three, two, one. And you're back to the beginning. Um, Very cleverly, you don't understand the connections until you've got right back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, So it's kind of like a pyramid structure. This couldn't work in the film, really, because to introduce a new story and reset the whole premise every 30 minutes, it would stop the ability to explore the themes that are shared. So it took them a year to write the screenplay. It is entirely different to the source material, which is brave as it is. But as you've said, just like the characters and the stories, it's this idea of transcending conventions. And boy, did they go for it. So they opted for a fragmented structure instead. They were going to intercut or crosscut back and forth between time and place, story to story. The effect being that the boundaries of chronology and time and any difference between the stories is dissolved because the intention is to show that they exist eternally. They're all just the same. Mm-hmm. So the idea of separation being an illusion is something that could be achieved through editing. And we stay just long enough in each of the stories for the hook to be sunk in. And then we're propelled to the next. Yes. Another way of thinking about it, and there's lots of ways you can think about the film musically. Mm-hmm. We'll get into more of that later on. But yeah. is that the structure of the film is like chords rather than single notes? They said that, yeah, that they went at it in more of a composition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, playing together. Which is a really interesting way to think about it. Mm-hmm. I, I, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's extremely complicated. Yeah. I'm surprised, actually, it didn't take longer than yeah. to write. Yeah, to that's honest. true. That's true. Um, obviously I did a lot of work in films that have multiple narratives in them so it's worth saying that the whole reason you kind of get these themes emerging is because when you place stories and or characters side by side you automatically compare them you register that they're independent and instinctively your brain then pushes for a bigger picture yeah the result is a mosaic made up of small component parts like the ocean with its multitude of drops, again, referenced by Mm -hmm. itself. However, unlike a lot of films, the protagonists in Cloud Atlas never meet, which is why they're brought together at the level of narration by cross-cutting. So we understand Mm -hmm. that their fates are somehow linked or that they're meant to come together somehow. Yeah. The way they did it is they took the novel and basically cut it up. Every plot moment, every character development, they put it on little index cards and put them all over the floor and they rearranged yep. and tried to find any sort of connective moments or parallels or shared tonal shifts or any twists and turns and climaxes and introductions mm-hmm. of new characters or themes or emotions. And that's how they began to create a shape for the film. Yeah, the layering of it. Exactly, yeah. But there are a lot of scenes. So how did the directors keep them all in line and coherent with one another? <laughs> with great difficulty. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. There's, there's a number of structural devices that they used either to frame the six stories or to track or guide us through the progression of them, to introduce them, 
to group them, regroup them, highlight shared themes, sustain dramatic flow, and all the way, they're also subliminally communicating to us the logic of how it's working. Yeah. We've already said so many quotes. Yeah. So at a basic level, they added a prologue and an epilogue. That's something that the book mm. doesn't have. Right. The prologue is especially important because it's not only an informal introduction to the six stories, but as I said, it serves as an exposition about how the film's going to take place, like the rules of the game that's going to happen. Yeah. It tells us that we're going to be intercutting. The main character, Zachary, starts the story but everyone else's voices takes over. Mm-hmm. And we know it's going to jump forwards and backwards in time. Uh, Cavendish jokes that he hates flashbacks and flash forwards. Um, <laughs> by presenting us with this very brief microcosm of the six protagonists, they're not all shown at the beginning of their story. Some of them we see the very end, or we're right slap bang in the middle. Yeah. So a lot of questions are raised and connections are deliberately unclear. So we know it's going to be a puzzle that's going to be assembled and put together. So little things like that you don't think about when you watch it, but it's setting up your expectations for the film as you go yeah. forward. And the epilogue basically just ties it all back, either bringing them full circle or delivering them to a conclusion. So that's how their book ended. But all the way through, how do you keep track of where you are? On the simplest level, there's a formal introduction to every story after the prologue. Yeah. You get a very standardised landscape shot of the setting with caption in the corner that says it's this time and you're in this place. Yeah, so you know you've moved on. Yeah, exactly. But throughout the film, I've found that there's four instances where all the stories are grouped even though they've gone off in all their different directions. Yeah. They get sort of rounded back up and joined together by moments of montage, usually with one of the characters monologuing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 30 minutes in, Zachary in the last story has a nightmare where he sees all the acts of crime and violence and unkindness happening in all the others. Yeah. At the one hour mark, the abbess from the same story, she's reading the book, The Revelations that Somnis said, yeah. And that's all acts of kindness. Mm-hmm. Uh, one hour 30, yesterday my life was headed in one direction, today it's headed in another. We see all mm-hmm. the characters either making a choice or having a twist of fate. Yeah. Two hours in, all boundaries are conventions waiting to be transcended. The things we see are all love, friendships that defy the natural order. So they get regrouped over and over again at these moments. I had a f- um, feeling as you got to the last, say, 30 minutes or so, mm-hmm. um, that the connections felt closer. Things yeah. like um, one character say, um, I'm going to plan my escape, and it would cut to an escape scene in Brilliant. another yeah. story. Yeah. And the actions all start to feel familiar mm-hmm. in each story, and the connections are, are a lot closer to each other. Before that, you know, a bit dotty, isn't the it? Stories could be very different. Yeah, yeah. the stories are, are taking you down different roads, and they are less similar. Mm-hmm. But then, as they start to come together, they start to come to the climax of each story. Those climaxes start to pull together. Yeah, I guess like if you were doing a jigsaw puzzle and putting all the pieces in, the image mm-hmm. starts to take shape, and then you can see the bigger picture. If yeah. that makes sense. Yes. Um, great that you mentioned transitions. There's so many times where they've either found or invented reasons to cut between the two stories so that the dramatic flow is continued but also the setup of one thing might be in one story but the payoff continues in another yeah either conversations that happens in dialogue mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so six myth calls louisa saying i need your help but you cut to cavendish and he says i need fifty thousand yes, pounds um yeah 
or using those materials that are passed between the stories. Mm-hmm. So as Ewing writes his last journal entry, we cut to Frobisher turning the last page of the journal as he reads it. Yeah. Uh, which in turn then cuts to Sixsmith reading Frobisher's letters about how he's lost the other half of, yeah, the, uh, yeah. of the journal and so on and so on. It, it's interesting to note, uh, interesting but not surprising to mm-hmm. find that editing proved to be a problem at first um, mm. with the struggle to create the right tone yeah. and, and connect the pieces the way that they wanted them to. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the transitions were obviously of huge importance but they were discovered literally throughout the entire process. So they were discovered in the script, in the prep, mm-hmm. in the filming, uh, like just c- certain camera moves and in the editing as well. Yeah. It, it took the entire process to perfect the transitions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, when you said movement, like movement and actions is, is another one. Mm-hmm. It might be that Sonmi and Heiju Chang flood a dam way as they escape the authorities which cuts directly to water flooding Louisa Ray's car as <laughs> she's been pushed off the bridge. Yeah. And some scenes are directly intercut the whole way through. So there's a bit where, again, Sonmi and Heiju are fleeing across the skyscraper. Mm-hmm. That's directly intercut backwards and forward with the stowaway on the ship as he runs mm-hmm. along the, um, I don't know what they're called, like the, he runs along the top of the ship. <laughs> um, yeah. And each are being fired at from below by either a spaceship or a shipmate. So this is a great link because, as you can see, there's often a visual link between the scenes, Mm -hmm. um, whether it was located or invented. It goes without saying, really, a novel doesn't have visual access. It doesn't have audio access either. There's no visual means. Yeah, exactly. It's all in your head. So not only could they use things like this to join the shots when they're literally next to each other, Mm -hmm. but there's an abundance of visual and audio references throughout the film to suggest this sort of eternal recurrence between them all. That's one of the things David Mitchell said he was really excited about. Mm, Um, The fact that you could use these visual things, it it seemed to excite him a lot Mm -hmm. that you could do that. So it is a treasure hunt <laughs> for mm. parallels, uh, so things that mirror each other, motifs, things that recur. Whether attention's drawn to them or not, it's inarguable that they are all in there. Yeah. So looking at visual things, what kind of like visual things that you see? I've only got a few. Mm. Is this where you want to know about the buttons? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes. It is. So um, Adam Ewing's buttons basically are from the first story um, and you see them quite closely. Then you see uh, Zachary wearing one as a necklace. Yeah, he sort of finds it, doesn't he? Um, yes. Even the uh, the birthmark yeah. is, you know, a link uh, each character. And you don't find out straight away. It's revealed at all different times of the stories. Yeah. Um, which characters have them and where. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest indication that they're all a variation mm-hmm. on each other. What I like about it is I had never thought of that idea that you, you just mentioned of the, him running across the top of the mast and then mm-hmm. running across that bridge. Yeah. Um, Even the camera shots had mirrored their exact every reaction shot. The mirroring of scenes, mm-hmm. I hadn't even contemplated that. But you get so involved in the idea that they're all the same. Like you don't think it, but mm-hmm. you do automatically without yeah. thinking. Because there's so many layers and so many examples. And I mean, it is incredible the mm-hmm. amount that's in there. Um, I really do believe it is the type of film. Again, it's the same way I feel about Titanic. I think films that have gone to that specific detail and are that length mm. as well. Yeah, <laughs> it is nearly three hours, so there's a lot in there. Yeah. Um, I think 
you will take different things from it every single time you mm. watch it. I definitely do. I still find more. <laughs> and that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. It is very hard to pull that off. Did you pick up on the trains? I didn't. Tell me about the trains. Uh, so the train that Frobisher takes to Edinburgh in the 30s mm-hmm. is a steam train, but you see a modern electric one when Timothy Cavendish is going up to Edinburgh. Uh, to the nursing home that if you watch the trailer back they actually put them side by side Uh they they fade um there's moments where adam ewing's ring is cut off that mirrors the collar Uh being cut off yeah it's on me's neck i mean it's so clever (laughs) there's loads there's loads so clever some of the new ones i'll I'll, I'll do some of the new ones i found Mm -hmm. things like um the mirroring of whips being used in the first story and the kona tribe using whips in the the last story one of my favorite ones i've just found the painting on the wall in Cavendish's room in the nursing home yeah. is of a plantation with a ship in the background, which is it's almost a direct image oh, of wow. what you see in the plantation in the, in first, the story. first story. Yeah. And then Fish Tanks is another one. I've got the floor of the Papasong restaurant where Sonmi works. Yeah. There's a, also a central fish tank at the mm-hmm. um, award ceremony that Cavendish is at at the beginning. Yeah. Aurora House's lounge has the same little mm-hmm. things like that. And you've got the um, characters of Vivian Ayres actually dreaming the place, um, yeah, he does. the restaurant. Yeah. He calls it a nightmare as well, which is interesting. Yeah, nightmarish cafe. This is a great link as well, because not only are some of them visual, but they're verbal, yeah. or at least initially verbal, and then they happen. The throwing off the balcony, that's something that uh, Louisa Ray says, something that is yeah. literally done <laughs> in, in, the, in the, the next story. Yeah. yeah. So have you got more of these? I've got a few examples of that, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear at one point, um, enemy sleeping, don't slit that throat. Yep, loads of slit throats. <laughs> Obviously, not knowing exactly what that refers to at the time. I even thought about that line when mm. Frobisher was in Air's bedroom. Yeah, you do, though, don't you? Because he is over him. Enemy sleeping, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, bridge are broken, because yep. it's in that pigeon English, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> That's part of the fun, though, as well, because you don't realise how much you miss <laughs> every yeah, time you hear I something really different. really struggled. But, yeah, bridge are broken when uh, Louisa Ray goes over the bridge in yep. the car yep. um, later on. And and just the fact that you've got um, Sixsmith in 1936 and the yeah, 1970s. He's the only character who reappears, yes. but he's just another example of how they could link stories together. Shall I tell you some of the things I've spotted yes, over the years? On. on the note of slitting throats, obviously you've got mm-hmm. um, Zachary's half-brother, Adam, is slit. Yeah. Zachary later on slits the Kona chief's throat. Yeah. You cut directly from the Kona chief's neck being slit to the logo of the Papasong restaurant, which is a happy, smiley, um, yellow face with a red necktie on. Yeah. Also foregrounding what happens to the clones, yeah, whether yeah. it's when they ascend to the consumer world or whether it's Hugh Grant clicking the switch and blowing up the charges in their necks. Yeah. Also, when Six Smith is shot in his hotel room, the blood splat on the yellow wall is, mm-hmm. again, the same shape. Wow. Loads of things like that. How do you think up things like this? How do you do these things? Uh, what's another one? Nurse Noakes threatens Cavendish that she'll make him eat soap powder. And in the future, what's the name of the food that the fabricants eat? Soap. Um, the name George. A Georgian plantation. Old Georgie. Mm-hmm. St. George and the Dragon statue is referenced on the piano. Cavendish's sister-in-law is called Georgette. That keeps coming around. Wow. The name of the ship is the Prophetess. We have a Prophetess in the last story, Susan Sarandon's character. 
Edinburgh comes back around. Vivian Eyre's manor is also Aurora House. It's the same building. God, I didn't think about that. <laughs> that, that it's the same it's exactly house. The same wow. House. You've just blown my mind. <laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> um, there's loads of location links. So we start in Hawaii in the Pacific. He travels back to California, which is where Louisa Ray's story is set. Isaac Sachs gets on a plane mm-hmm. to Seoul, which is where Sonmi's portion is set. Um, she eventually yep. travels to Hawaii, and that's where Big Isle is at the end. So you start and end in Hawaii. And little things like when we first meet Henry Goose, he's collecting teeth on the yep. beach. He's got a sieve and he's going through, and he says this is a cannibal banqueting hall. Later on, the cannibals are actually wearing teeth around their necks and things like that. So yeah. it goes on and on. There's so, so many. Every time you watch it, you will see more and more. Mm-hmm. I'd like to mention the music it plays the cloud atlas sextet in moments of reflection of mm-hmm. love uh, etc yeah the music obviously plays throughout mm-hmm. which is another way of linking all the stories in the moments yeah, together this is where we said it was a seventh material indirectly passed through the stories yeah. the cloud atlas sextet you hear it again and again but like the characters it goes through a series of incarnations i'm just curious how many times do you think you heard it in how many different variations oh god do you know what i am not sure i'll be honest didn't notice it as much Uh at first frequently (laughs) maybe i'll blow your mind again (laughs) so obviously initially robert frobisher composes it Yes. Uh, Louisa Ray buys the record of it. Yeah. When Jim Broadbent's character, in a similar sense, he also dreams the music itself. Yeah. A, a melody for viola, he says. Later on, you'll see Jim Broadbent playing a Korean musician in the streets, yeah. playing the sextet. The fabricants sing it every time someone leaves the restaurant to yeah, go to yeah. exaltation or whatever they call it. And when uh-huh. they walk to their deaths, they sing it as a hymn. Um, it's in the nursing home. It's playing in the dining room <laughs> as sort of like background music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it opens the 1973 story as a rock melody. Oh my god! It's been played at the Lemon Prizes in 2012 as a jazz arrangement. This has lyrics, and I swear to God, I've scoured the internet to try and find out what they chose as lyrics to the Cloud Atlas. Mm. I want to find out. I might even have to email them. Um, <laughs> So just like we hear it everywhere, um, most of the characters claim to have heard it before as well. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's in dreams and sometimes with no explanation at all. And we hear it as viewers on the soundtrack, you know, something that's not part of the story. So it passes between the characters' worlds and into our own. I love one moment where the two are synchronised, like our world and their world. Yeah. And it's when you see him writing the final chord on the page and you hear the final chord on the soundtrack. It's magic. It's incredible how they've put it all together. It's extremely self-referential, self-reflective. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of it being a sextet as well. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. it doesn't just link the stories, but it governs them. This is a metaphor for the structure that we're watching. Yeah. It's a sextet for overlapping soloists, each in its own language of key, scale and colour. That's the description of it. It is the reason people should be going back and, and yeah. re-evaluating this because... Mm-hmm. There is just so much there. You can't actually conceive that this was put together Mm -hmm. by people because it is so clever. Yeah. One thing we should acknowledge about the music as well is that it's described in the novel as this incomparable creation. How on earth do the Mm -hmm. filmmakers go about having that composed? 
Did you notice who actually co-composed the entire soundtrack? Did you notice? I did not. I was just about to ask you who who the composer was. One of the direct Tom Tickford is a very accomplished pianist. He co-composed no the entire way. soundtrack. Um, wow. So yeah, I just find that fascinating that they had to interpret what was on page. Well, it's in a way that kind of links to the story as well, isn't it? You've got mm. this book that is thought to be. Um, unadaptable yeah with this piece of music that's incomparable that that how do you compare that it, and and <laughs> both of those visions have been realized mm, it was meant to have been impossible but they somehow did it it's fantastic yeah, I, I really do think it's like nothing else i i can't see people going out of their way to make films like this <laughs> no. very often it's crazy as far as i'm concerned they have pulled it off perfectly yeah we just talked about this idea of overlapping soloists. We've avoided talking about cast as much as possible, really, because yes. this in itself is a whole extra layer. And arguably, it's the most mm. interesting choice that Absolutely, they made when yeah. they adapted the novel. Yeah. Again, taking it back to basics, novels don't have actors. <laughs> they have no. they have characters, and you can imply that they're similar or the same. So this was a choice, a very deliberate choice to do this, and that is to yeah. use the same cast of approximately 13 lead actors for all of the six stories playing multiple roles. I mean, as, as if it couldn't get yeah. any more complicated, Mary, at this point. Yes, they complicated <laughs> again. <laughs> and, and every actor plays various genders, ages, nationalities and ethnicities. So in a sense, the film's characters and actors undergo incarnations. Yeah, and that in itself adds to this openness that the film's creating. Mm -hmm. Anything is possible, everyone is connected, and any belief system is accepted. Yeah, yeah. It's quite spectacular, really. The characters talk about meeting again and again in different lives, but mm -hmm. in the same way, we as viewers recognise the cast across the different stories, as well as the cast almost recognising themselves across different stories. I do remember um, listening to one of them saying that, you know, they'd go into the makeup trailer and be like, so who are you? Yeah, they have no idea. Because <laughs> sometimes yeah. you couldn't tell who the person was. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, there are a few. It tricks you, doesn't it? That it's so... <laughs> some of them because they're playing like just a background character mm -hmm. yeah they, they, they pass them so quickly that you're unaware that they've even, it's even been one of them mm -hmm. it's unbelievable now we should mention how they let you see that okay yeah really clever very thoughtful it doesn't run like a normal credits with just a list what they actually do is show you mm -hmm. each of the characters that they played and it, when you actually watch it you're like ah oh, mm -hmm. yeah yeah um, what I found very interesting was that the cast members seem to have looked upon the challenge of playing multiple characters differently. Yeah. Especially uh, the likes of Halle Berry. Yeah. Thought about them as the progression of one soul. So the way she looks at it is each story, they're playing someone who's who's trying to be better, yeah. trying to progress as a person. Mm -hmm. And each story you see in them either complete that or fail and, and to, mm -hmm. to the point that eventually they reach this person. So in her case, Merenim, who is... She's sort of the saviour of mankind in the end, isn't she? Yeah, everything that the other characters in maybe the other stories in her incarnations that have been trying to fulfil. Yeah, exactly. You can track the progress, if you wanted to, mm -hmm. of each actor's yeah. soul throughout time. Not everybody does evolve as such, but I really think no. it's interesting to see how women and minority groups progress. Because they often yeah. go from 
uh, voiceless slaves and they become leaders or generals and prophets and heroes, saviors, mm -hmm. goddesses. Yeah, Susan Sarandon's an interesting one in that case. Exactly, yeah. Her first one, she's the woman at the table who's not being listened to yep. and, and she becomes the prophet of, of the village, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, the person who, who Everyone they goes turn to, to for yeah. everything. <laughs> um, that's really interesting each each character's got a very interesting mm. arc whether or not they fulfill a bad to good like the likes of tom hanks who goes from playing henry goose to zachary who is flawed but ultimately becomes the person that he would want to be the directors talk about tom hanks a lot again it's not something that's in the novel but what they were keen to explore is what if the villain of one story is actually the hero yeah. of another so namely, how does Tom Hanks evolve from the antagonist Henry Goose in the first story who who sort of aids the devil because the poison that he's yes. using, he says, oh, I'm familiar with this devil or whatever. Um, yeah. All the way through to a good hearted protagonist, Zachary, who resists the fangy devil, old Georgie in the last story. Yeah. Just the fact that you're seeing Tom Hanks play a villain as well is is quite yeah. mind boggling because he, he's the Hollywood everyman. Exactly. Yeah. It's like theatre in a way. He described it as like doing three seasons of repertory theatre all in one go. Yeah. But it's funny you say that because, yeah, you do get to see actors doing things you've never seen them before. Um, we'll talk about Hugh Grant in a second and, and Hugo Weaving. <laughs> but um, one thing that Halle Berry said in a more extended press conference I watched last night is that initially her and one of the directors, Tom Tickfer, were trying out the outfits that she was going to wear as Jocasta, who's in the period piece. And she kind of had to remind him, like, well, I've never been able to play roles like this before. This is an impossibility yeah. for me. So the mm -hmm. fact that she could play a white German woman <laughs> um, for yeah. her was a dream come true. Which, again, the openness of it, the yeah. openness the, that you can be anyone. Mm. It's already quite a diverse cast as well. We should probably say who's actually in the cast. Um, playing the lead characters, as you said at the beginning, Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Jim Broadbent, Jim Sturgis, Duna Bay and Ben Whishaw. Yeah. And then playing secondary characters throughout. You've got Hugo Weaving and Hugh Grant, Keith David, James Darcy, mm -hmm. David Gyasi, Susan Sarandon and Zunju as well. Um, Hugh Grant and Hugo Weaving play villains in every story. If anything, they mm. devolve as characters. They don't get better. Yeah. I guess the message here is that there's always going to be bad people in the world. Yeah. There's always going to be evil. You can't get any lower than playing <laughs> a cannibal chief, can you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, one of the quotes in the film is that tigers can't change their stripes, and that is true, yeah. if not for Tom Hanks' role, which he kind of defies that convention. Um, yes. It is the case for Hugh Grant and Hugo Weaving. They're always enforcing that mm -hmm. there's a natural order to the world. Yeah. Hugo Weaving even devolves into just an idea. Like we said, he's not even a character anymore. He's just this spirit of hatred mm -hmm. and, and discrimination. Yeah. And Hugh Grant's always the same greedy businessman, deceptive type. You know, mm -hmm. something as silly as tricking his brother into a nursing home or planning to blow up yeah. half of San Francisco, um, yeah. eventually just ending up as a predator. Um, what did you make of the hair and makeup? It's a subject of a lot of discussion. It's, I think it is incredibly done. Mm. In certain cases, you can't tell people are people. Like Halle Berry plays the um, male doctor. Yeah, old male Korean doctor. Yeah, it's incredible. They're meant to stand out, I think, Um so that you are aware that the actor is there. I'm so glad you said that, yeah. Because So, yes, I can see why some people say, oh, well, yes, I don't think it's very good, but I think yeah. it's intentional. Yes, um, I agree. So, in a way, 
I can't see fault with it. Arguably, it's not the best, but I think it's mm-hmm. important that the prosthetics left just enough of a hint of the original actors in there. Because as much yeah. as it would have been impressive to have had the cast completely disappear into their roles, what would have been the point? Yeah, it doesn't, ser- it doesn't serve your point then that, that you're trying to make with the film. Yeah, that thematic agenda. But like you say, there are still actors who slip under the radar and that's just an extra added bonus because that's just a load of fun. Yes, yeah. But it misses the point as well to get caught up in the political correctness of it as well. I think a lot of people, audiences, critics have kind of criticised the film for, you know, white actors playing Asian characters. You've got uh, black actors playing white actors and vice versa, all those kind of things. But that's why it works, because you have got vice versa. Yeah. It's boundless. It's about the notion that it expresses. Yeah. The idea that we're all the same, we're all human, and we're subject to the same experiences, regardless of what shape or colour or where you're from. It doesn't define you and it doesn't separate you, because actually we're all in the same boat, as it were. Yeah. Um, the last thing, um, and again we hinted at it throughout, is how they use the cast for further parallels. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you might have noticed there's some deliberately paired relationships across the stories. Yeah. Um, obviously Tom Hanks and Halle Berry, especially mm-hmm. in Louisa Ray's section and later on with Zachary and Meronim. Yeah, it builds on the f- the familiarity that these yeah. characters, there's something about them, they know each other mm-hmm. in some way, there's a connection that's immediately there um, because of this suggestion that it was built at some other time yeah every time they meet it's exactly the same so when isaac Sachs comes through into his office and he finds her if you put them side by side it's identical when zachary comes through the hut at the end and he finds merinim who's arrived and the other one is duna bay and jim sturgis so their husband Mm -hmm. and wife at the beginning but they're also sonmi and heiju at the end this loving relationship that withstands time Mm, sort of immortal love is another (laughs) theme that that goes in detail that's gone into this detail everything is intended everything's a choice it's all been put there we could go on and on and on the list does really go on so to summarize they use cast basically to represent a mass demographic onto which the themes of the film are mapped it's about everyone it affects everyone Uh, it's about the commonality of humanity that we share this common denominator of connectedness and that mm-hmm. everything is connected. And I've written on my little script here, breathe. This is where <laughs> I can breathe. Because I think we've probably covered, covered everything. Lens. That's just sort of the bare bones of it, really. Um, <laughs> but I'm quite excited now because we can ask some of the bigger questions now yeah. as a summary. So um, you said you hadn't read a lot of what people had written or said about the film. No, I didn't. A little taste. People said it was an honourable failure. Oh, uh, a misfire, but an honourable one. Really? Uh, one article said, Cloud Atlas is terrible, but you should still watch it. Um, <laughs> lots of naysayers say that it's never boring, or they say it's flawed, but... Dot, dot, dot. So there's lots of negatives with hidden positives. Yeah. In the year it came out, it appeared on best and worst films of the year lists. You can probably tell me now what you thought of the film. Okay, so... It's never going to be my favourite film. Mm-hmm. I think the reason it, I found it hard to connect to is because it's so fragmented. Mm-hmm. And obviously because you've got so many characters, I found it very hard to um, bond with them. Yeah. So that's where it didn't land for me. Because it's so fragmented, I couldn't connect completely with it. Yeah. 
However, mm-hmm. saying that, I just haven't, I can't have anything bad to say about it. Yes, it's fragmented. Yeah, and yes, yeah. that stops, that stops me mm-hmm. personally making it a favourite. Um, but I've got, I've got no bad things to say. I, I just cannot in good conscience <laughs> say anything bad about it because oh, it's so incredibly detailed and all of the actors in it are actors that I like. They all mm-hmm. perform yeah. astoundingly well in every piece that they're given. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've got I've got no bad words. Oh, that's good. I'll, I'll give what what I think. In my opinion, you can watch the film and get to the end, and the stories don't matter. That's not the point. Yeah. So to me, it's obviously about the ideas, the message, and the meaning. Yeah. Films of this type, where they put lots of stories together, like I said earlier, they're designed to distance you. Yeah, yeah. To be taken out of it examine it as a broader picture extract what the stories share on a thematic level Mm -hmm. and apply it to your own life or the real world and i can't see how anyone can say that the film didn't achieve that whilst also still being pretty enjoyable and entertaining and i think it's fair to say that that was the intention so if you don't get that something's gone wrong (laughs) yeah that's the positive and the negative all wrapped up though isn't it so yes it's fragmented which means you you are going to distance yourself which means the stories probably aren't aren't going to be important to you well there you go that's where you've turned off 80 percent of your audience however you have to look deeper to see the meanings to get it they um wanted the six stories as a whole and they trusted the audience to follow yeah uh, belief that they are stimulated by broader material Mm -hmm. um which obviously in a lot of ways it turned out that they weren't um at the time but importantly they're asking the audience to participate yeah. This type of film is rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and they thought audiences have a hunger for intelligent cin- cinema, which I think they do. I mean, um, yeah. Christopher Nolan's a great example of that. Too many films right now that people go to to turn off. Yeah, not exactly. Many that you go to be turned on. That sounds a bit weird, yeah. but I know what I mean. I think <laughs> cinema in itself is partly to blame for that. Like you say, they go, they sit, they mm. eat popcorn, they leave. It maybe failed on impact. But I think a good thing to say um, would be what we've, well, what you personally have found in the last few weeks. There is this hidden market for this film out there. It's so strange, even just in the last couple of days, the amount of times I've just completely at random seen people saying, I forgot how much of a masterpiece it was. And something I didn't say at the beginning that I meant to is that part of the reason for doing this is because IMDb also out of the blue posted cloud atlas love it or hate it and ultimately there was over 300 people who reacted and responded to what i had to say which is why i thought actually all this time i've been thinking that people just didn't like or didn't see the film and that i was the only one there's a lot of people who actually if it's not one of their favorites it's their favorite film so this really has cult status yeah and i think it's growing become a cult mm. film. People didn't watch it when it came out. It didn't have a big release. I'll give it that. They nope. they struggled to finance it and they struggled to distribute it because it was hard to sell. Well, this is what they said, didn't they? It, they wanted it to be a bit of everything. All mm. genres, action, politics, actors in multiple roles. And yeah. overall, that is a really hard sell. It's breaking boundaries. <laughs> However, to break boundaries, a lot of the time, breaking boundaries has the negative effect yeah, and People it's a go, slow process oh no it's too much it's, yeah. it's too far well, maybe it'll take 500 years <laughs> yeah yeah you get naysayers whenever you break boundaries mm-hmm. you're gonna get the people who get it and the people who don't yeah. and that's very much um what happened with this i think they did go to a huge lengths to try and make mm. it 
as simple as possible. I mean, they, they created the extended trailer to simplify it, and that yeah. does the job very well. It shows the connecting trailer. pieces, linking <laughs> the stories, yeah. the narration helps simplify the philosophical themes. So yeah. they did attempt to hmm. simplify it for people. They definitely did. But maybe, just like the efforts of Adam Ewing in 1849, it might take 500 years for it to be finally recognised and this revolution will happen. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, like we say, you're seeing slow signs of it. I mean, the last couple of weeks, I think I've had a few very surprised messages from you. Yeah, um, yeah, I was quite shocked. Just showing your reaction to... Well, I thought I was the only one. How it's changing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, so it's happening. Mm-hmm. It is happening, obviously. And But that's the interesting thing about film, isn't it? It's been eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, how time changes things. Um, yeah. How people see things differently. Mm-hmm. Which is, I really, really do hope that this episode does something like that. Because I think they've succeeded. I would really like people to reevaluate it. I did. I, def- I didn't remember a thing about yeah. it when I watched it the first time. <laughs> It's clear that this has an effect on people and um, it has a mm. following. Um, and like I said, you, you can't come to this looking at it just face value. Mm. I think if you do that, I think it's it's incredibly ignorant, um, which is what I did the first time I watched it. I didn't look into it. I didn't yeah. see the thing. I just watched it for what it was. I really don't think you can do that because you're not being fair to the film. You're not justifying mm-hmm. what's there. Yeah. I do think they pulled off everything they tried to do. It does break boundaries. It does have incredible messages. Mm-hmm. Um, and the messages themselves are what we should be taking into life anyway. Yeah, they're completely being open, human. Being diverse. Yeah. If you make good choices, they will ripple through time. You yeah. will affect people that you meet. Mm-hmm. One person said it has a way of not just making you pay attention, but walking out, reeling with ideas that might have seemed hokey three hours before. Yeah, I read the um, the review that Cinema Blend did, mm-hmm. and they said the fact that Cloud Atlas works at all is a marvel. Yeah, uh, and I very much agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, it did result in making something personal, and the spectacle can't be denied. Yeah, it's just a shame that um, yeah, the didn't, majority didn't find of its audiences, audiences at the time. Yeah, the majority of audiences don't think that way. Yeah. I really do think it's important to to go back and look at it again. Yay! This is exactly what I was hoping. Like all the time I was writing, not just my undergraduate but my postgraduate one, and every, everyone was like, "Oh, what's your dissertation about?" And I would explain it, and they would just switch off. As much as much <laughs> as they meant well, like you could just yeah. see them stop paying attention. Mm-hmm. I've just gathered up as a very final summary some of the mm-hmm. nice things that have been said about the film. Yes. So Cloud Atlas, unique. One of a kind and original. It's Definitely. crazy, bonkers, <laughs> and bizarre. It's yep. revolutionary as well as being gimmicky. It transcends mm-hmm. cinematic boundaries. Uh, it's Absolutely. profound without being pretentious. Yeah, it's one of the most ambitious films ever made. Mm-hmm. Cloud Atlas was ahead of its time. You need to watch the film more than once. Yeah, definitely. It's one of the most underrated and misunderstood movies of this generation. It's an unappreciated masterpiece. It's worthy of people's attention. I would add in there, it's worthy of study as well because I've, yes, I've been absolutely. there, done that. Um, it's almost impossible not to love it in return. Yeah. And everything is indeed connected. Yeah, I can't disagree with any of that. I'm not saying that Cloud Atlas is the best film ever made because that would be misleading and I don't think that would be correct. Yeah. But I do think it's one of the most ambitious, adventurous, 
profound films ever made. Yeah, and like it is worthy of time. Yeah, I really wish that it had been seen, or at least it will be seen now. Uh, one final question, very quick one. How many Oscars was Cloud Atlas nominated for? Uh, none. None. How many should have it been nominated for? <laughs> I would say five or six minimum. Ooh, that's good. I think the director should be in there, definitely. Mm-hmm. They were also the screenwriters. Yeah, script undoubtedly should be in there. Yeah, um, I think visual effects and yeah. makeup, yeah. definitely. Hair and makeup. Um, music should be in there Score. and sound. Yeah, Score, hair and makeup, visual effects, screenplay and editing at the very least. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I agree directors should have been there as well. I, I think it's very sad that it wasn't, mm. um, but I understand why it wasn't. It was nominated for one Golden Globe for score, um, but that's pretty much mm-hmm. of the big awards. That's all it got. You do think, how? Yeah, criminally underrated. So, yes. we, we got through it. Yeah. We got through There's it. There's a lot to say, isn't there? <laughs> so, I have, I have one question to ask you. Yes. This week, yes. Matt, what is your film Cloud to Atlas. recommend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that was inevitable. Technically, I recommended it in our very first episode, but that's before we standardised the um, recommender film at the end. Yes. Um, and I only spoke about it for about 60 seconds in total. If you haven't seen it, um, you've got this far. Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I hope if you have seen it that you agree and that there's something that we've explained that you didn't see the first time around or at least we've affirmed what you thought you knew i do think a time is coming for cloud atlas to sort of reclaim a little bit of the limelight that it should have had (laughs) i don't know why it's happening now it might be coronavirus i don't know um it's a universal message it applies to everybody regardless of whether you want it to or not it speaks about the very nature of being a human being on this planet so at least enjoy the ride because it is the roller coaster. Yes, it certainly is. That's my recommendation, of course. Okay. Um, mine's very different. Mm-hmm. Mine is very much light affair, just entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, no hidden messages. However, it does have a universal appeal, I think, because who doesn't like the Beatles? Um, okay. I'm recommending Yesterday. Oh, I liked Yesterday. Um, I rewatched with my husband mm. uh, this week. Um, and it's just good fun. Mm. It's it's really good fun. Um, it's a Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis creation, mm. um, which in itself you think, wow, quality. yeah, yeah. Um, you know that's great. Um, you've got Himesh Patel playing Jack, who is a struggling singer whose career is just not taking off who gets hit by a bus when the entire world turns off for about 13 (laughs) seconds um and when they wake up nobody apart from him um remembers the beatles (laughs) um which leads to some hilarious googling um and you've got lily james in there um who oh i just she's very she's very likable I just love it. Um, you've got Ed Sheeran in a, a extended cameo. Yeah. Really, it's more like a part mm. in the film. And uh, Kate McKinnon, who is just absolutely hilarious, um, and it's just good fun. It's a movie with Beatles songs in it. I mean, what's not to like? The film made me sort of go. Actually, they standardise a lot of the great music that we have today. So yeah, that's my recommendation. Very good. Yeah, good um, film. 
I guess it goes without saying that there's still no major news stories, but you can keep no, an eye out for any really. new trailers eventually when they do come out on our platform on the website cinechat.co.uk. There's been some there's there's been some Netflix trailers, hasn't there? Mm. And um there has been a few delays, I, I suppose you could call it. Yeah, them inevitable. News, or being delayed. Yeah, we're still waiting to know if we can do our Christopher Nolan episode. Um yeah. in July, but we'll see. So you can all watch Cloud Atlas instead. Yeah, and yesterday. <laughs> watch Cloud Atlas and have a profound moving experience. Rediscover what it means to be alive. Yeah, and then you can go and get some popcorn and sit and watch yesterday. Exactly. Um, where can they find us? Okay. Uh, you can obviously find us at www.cinechat.co.uk forward slash podcast or on any of your preferred social media platforms. Uh, just search Cinechat Podcast. I'm not going to listen. <laughs> Cinechat Pod or <laughs> Cinechat underscore official. Or you could email us, please, at podcast at cinechat.co.uk. Yay. Oh, actually, no, we got an email. We did get an email. Beg your pardon. Thank you, Gary, for our lovely email. Yes, the other week. That's that very was, kind of you to say. Much appreciated. So next week, what are we doing, Matt? Uh, Ridley Scott episode because Gladiator, believe it or not, is turning twenty years old this year. It goes without saying we'll be touching on Blade Runner, Alien, Gladiator at the very least. Um, yes, three mega smash hits. But yeah, anything could happen. So if you're mm, interested in the films of Ridley Scott, uh, tune yeah. in next time. <laughs> okay. Well, it's uh, it's bye from me. Yep, and it's bye from me. Bye.